We're coming to continue worshiping today through hearing the word expounded and preached. This morning, we're going to take a short break from the book of Proverbs. As many of us know, Jeff has been working through the book of Proverbs. But while he and Evie are on vacation this week, we're going to move into the gospel according to Luke, just for this week. And since our text this morning is the prologue or the introduction to the gospel according to Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4, it's appropriate before we start just to give a few brief points of background to the book, just to give us something to hang our hats on. Well, first of all, like all the Gospels, Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the the Gospel according to Luke tells us about Jesus' life, death, ministry, life, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. That's what a Gospel does. It tells us about Jesus. Jesus is the central character of a Gospel. Second, even though the name of the author is never identified in the Gospels, strictly speaking, all four of our Gospels are anonymous. The author never really identifies himself by name. The name of Luke, a Gentile physician and companion of Paul, was attached to this Gospel at a very early stage, and a good historical argument confirms that Luke is indeed the author of our Gospel. He's a a non-Jewish, a Gentile Christian believer. And finally, The gospel wasn't Luke's only work. The book of Acts is also penned by the same author. And even though our canon were interrupted, we have Luke and then we have John and then we have Acts. Luke, Acts, you can look at that, you can, you can see them as maybe one volume, volume one and then volume two of a larger work, a larger body. So with a few of these background details laid aside, let's turn to the text and read Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let me pray. Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted this morning. Lord, your, your word has the power through the Spirit of breaking down the strongholds of our hearts and piercing through our pride. At the same time, it has the power to uplift the humble and the broken. And I pray that as your Spirit drives home the word into our hearts today, uh, you know what each of us needs, and I pray that you would that the word would be applied to our hearts in just the way we need it this morning, for you are able. Pray that we would see Jesus in all of his majesty and all of his beauty, and that we would walk away knowing that you are a good God uh, who loves us and who has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a brief story and perhaps a lengthier-than-usual introduction as an entry point into our text. Roughly five and a half years ago or so, on a crisp fall afternoon, I came home from church and, like normal people do, I guess, in the fall, turned on an NFL football game. This football game was between the Buffalo Bills and the Pittsburgh Steelers, two teams I really don't care about normally as a Philadelphia Eagles fan. But I tuned into the game nevertheless because the game had serious fantasy football implications for me. So you people that have played fantasy football know quite well what that's like. Well, the game was interesting in and of itself, and it eventually went into overtime. 
And in overtime, I watched a play that could have been the game-winning play for the Buffalo Bills at the hands of my fantasy football wide receiver. What happened was, in overtime, uh, the, the Buffalo Bills are driving down the field, and they're quite, they're quite a few yards away, probably, I don't know, 50, 60 yards away from the end zone. But the quarterback snaps the ball on this play, and my fantasy football wide receiver jets down the sideline. And he breaks through the first line of defense, and then he breaks through the second line of defense, and he looks like he's home free. And the quarterback, and this all takes place in, in a split second, the quarterback sees the receiver, my fantasy receiver, sprinting down the sidelines, and he unleashes the ball downfield. Beautiful pass, receiver in stride, ball in the air, the two destined to meet in the end zone. And as they meet in the end zone, the ball goes right through my receiver's hands. A game-winning opportunity squandered, and more importantly, precious fantasy football points lost for me. Well, the receiver, as, as he fails at this play, he's evidently distraught, as I think any of us would be. Um, but after the game, he was especially distraught, and he took to social media, he took to Twitter to express his frustrations laying the ultimate blame on God in 140 characters or less. And let me, let me read you what he wrote. This is what he writes. He writes, I praise you 24-7, and this how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. Explanation, explanation points and everything. Well, the reason that I wanted to start with this story is because at its heart, this rant from this receiver reveals a very, very common and popular view of the way God works. And that being, if we praise God, and if we live a relatively clean life, then as the assumption goes, God is bound to give us prosperity, wealth, 2.5 healthy children, and so forth. Or for those of us with maybe more moderate expectations, if we live a reasonably clean and moral life, then at least we won't suffer too much in our lives. You see, at its foundation, this view of God draws a correlation between how good we are or aren't and what we can ultimately expect from God. In fact, one of the fastest growing religions in America today, we probably don't think of it as a religion, is a loose belief system known as moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a loose belief system, especially among America's youth, that holds as its central tenets the belief that God simply wants us to be happy. He essentially acts as a cosmic butler whose who's, who's only purpose is out to meet our needs as long as we're good moral people who generally treat others well. Now, while I bet many of us hear this, and we hear this quote from the Buffalo Bills wide receiver, and we scoot it aside as a defective view of religion, or at least a defective view of Christianity. After all, as Christians, we're taught that God's goal is to conform us into the image of Christ, right? Not to give us a life free of suffering. But even though many of us, I would bet, probably know this, I wonder if the way we live in the midst of real disappointment and heartache is functionally more aligned with this receiver than we care to admit. It's not very difficult for us to dismiss the frustrations or the rantings of someone whose biggest problem in life is that he dropped a ball while making several millions of dollars on the side, I might add. But I wonder if when we're forced to deal with the harder issues of life, when we lose our jobs, for instance, if our default mode is more in line with this typical view of religion. 
What happens when real mess hits your life? How do you process through disappointment and heartache? What's your reaction towards God? Is it your tendency to recall when disappointment and heartache hits, all of the things that you've done right, all of the ways that you've lived morally, all the ways that you've loved others well, and then to measure that against all the things that you've done poorly, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, that God is unjust to give us suffering? Is that the way that we look at it? If we functionally believe living a clean, moral life that affirms all the right doctrine and generally sets its sights on doing good things is a way to get something from God, then what happens when you find out you have cancer or when your children rebel? Has God failed you? Ultimately, what we need at all times, but especially during times of heartache and real disappointment, is to draw again and again from a deeply rooted biblical foundation for who God really is and what he's up to in the lives of the people of God. But we also, I think, need this for the ordinary rhythms of life too, right? Even if your struggle at present isn't how to reconcile disappointment or discouragement with who God is and what he's up to, even if the way you live in the midst of real disappointment is far different than this Buffalo Bills wide receiver, surely we all need to be washed continuously in a biblical perspective of who God is and what he's up to, so that in our prayer lives, we can conform what we want for ourselves and others with what God wants for us, so that in our evangelism, we know what we're calling people to. So whether right now you're struggling with how to reconcile your view of God with a painful experience, or whether you just need to be refreshed in where God's taking us and what it means for you and I. Practically speaking, that the kingdom of God is advancing. Simply put, we need direction in our lives. And so this brings us to our text this morning, the prologue to Luke's gospel, where I believe we're given direction. In short, Luke tells us in his prologue that the entire goal of his gospel is to give us direction. His entire goal is to point us towards something Luke wants to show us who God is and what he's up to in the ministry of Christ so that we would walk away assured that God is good and that he's out for the good of his people. He writes in 1.4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's his ultimate aim here. He wants to give us direction, but the purpose of giving us direction is so that we would be assured, assured that the gospel's true, assured that as the people of God, God really is taking us somewhere, and his plan for us is really a good plan. But this isn't certainty. A lot of your texts probably say certainty. This isn't certainty in the sense of never having any doubts about anything ever in God's word. Nor is it merely Luke's goal to conform or to confirm facts about what Theophilus has learned. Rather, the sense here is more like assurance. Luke's goal is that by properly orienting Theophilus, and us, as the contemporary readers of Luke's gospel, that we would be assured that the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, and the truth about our standing as the people of God is true, that we would be confirmed and assured in that. You see, Luke's most immediate audience, those to whom he's directly writing, we have Theophilus as the addressee, but most certainly the gospel, this gospel, the gospel of Luke, immediately spread to a Gentile community. That's likely who Luke is writing to, a more broader Gentile community. And this is a community that, for a variety of reasons, is experiencing, at the time of, at the, time of the distribution of the gospel, intense social dislocation. 
they were really feeling the cost of discipleship. And if they were going to stick with it, they were going to stick with this whole Christian thing, this whole Christian thing that was very new to them, they needed to be reminded, first of all, what the gospel was. Second of all, that the gospel was good news. And then third of all, that the gospel was good news, not just for the Jewish Christians, but for them, the Gentile Christians as well. They'd certainly learned the gospel, as the prologue indicates, but just like most of us who've learned the gospel too, many of us have grown up in the church, have heard the gospel preached and proclaimed Sunday after Sunday, week after week, but they needed, and we need too, every day to be washed over and over and over again with what the gospel really is and why it's good news for us. We need to be reminded what it says about you and I. It can't be something we just hear once and and never listen to again for a month or for uh, several months. It seems to be a daily part of our diet. We need to take in the gospel day after day after day. This is what Luke is getting after, and this is what we as the people of God need. In short, Luke's prologue tells us that this assurance, this deep-seated assurance comes about not by looking at how much you have done for God or by looking at your circumstances. After all, that's not the gospel. Brother, this true assurance that Luke is aiming at comes about by looking first and foremost at Jesus Christ, about setting our eyes on him and what he has accomplished. If you want to know, if you want to be assured that the gospel is true, if you want to know that you are of invaluable worth, don't look at what you've done for God. Look at what God has done for you in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's where Luke is aiming. Look to Jesus. And in the rest of his gospel, as we read, the ebbs and the flows through the parables, through the other, other narrative events that are described and narrated for us, through the ebbs and flows, Luke is upholding the person and work of Jesus Christ preeminently so. And so as we enter Luke's gospel through the lens of this prologue today, Luke tells us at the outset that his goal is to give us assurance, and that this assurance is built in two ways. One, it's built by seeing the trustworthiness of Luke's account, and then two, seeing the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. Seeing the trustworthiness of his account, and then seeing the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. So first, Luke tells us simply that his account is trustworthy in the prologue. He assures his readers that what he has compiled is a, is a true and accurate picture of the historical Jesus, of what's taken place. In the second volume of his work, remember Luke Acts, we, we consider volume one and volume two, the second volume of his work is a true picture of what the Holy Spirit has done by bringing the gospel to the nations. Looking at the text now, in verse 3, Luke tells us that he has followed all things closely for some time past. Now keep in mind that Jesus died probably in the early, we'll say 30 to 33 AD time period, and Luke is probably writing about 40 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now there's always going to be debate about when exactly every letter of the New Testament and gospel in the New Testament was written, but the best evidence most conclusively tells us that Every bit of the New Testament was written well within the lifespan of the eyewitnesses. And so 40 to 50 years is well within the lifespan of the eyewitnesses. But Luke didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll write a gospel today. Even though Luke wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, Luke was a second-generation Christian, that's no barrier, as he tells us in his gospel, for writing. 
He was a Christian for some time. He also, if you read Acts closely, Luke makes a few cameo appearances in Acts. And he had very likely interviewed several eyewitnesses. He knew some of the 12 disciples, the apostles, and he was a companion of the apostle Paul. And he even used, in the composition of his gospel, the, the gospel of Mark. Most scholars argue that the gospel, according to Mark, was the first gospel, and that the other gospels are building upon Mark, using supplementary materials such as eyewitness accounts and other oral tradition that arose. Now, there's a whole history of scholarship that's tried to determine exactly what these sources were in the composition of Luke's gospel and really in the composition of all of the gospels. But the point of all of this, the point of the prologue, what Luke is really trying to drive home here is that Luke himself is a diligent, studied historian. He did his due diligence. He did his research. And his account can therefore be trusted. It's a truthful picture of Jesus Christ. But why is all this important? Why why does Luke really feel compelled at the outset to tell us all about his due diligence and his historical method in writing his two-volume work? Well, simply put, he wants us to take his account seriously. Yes, that's absolutely true. But even more than that, he wants us to take the central figure of his gospel seriously, and that's Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus and his life ministry, death and resurrection, and the work of the Spirit in and through the church in Acts has serious implications for us. As Luke unfolds his two-volume work, what we see is that an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with his spirit-filled church, will change us. In fact, looking at the text in verse 2 where we read the phrase, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, another possible way that could be rendered in the Greek is just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses became ministers of the word. Either way we render it, it's the same idea that's coming across here. And that is that these eyewitnesses, probably the 12 are immediately in view, but these eyewitnesses, even more broadly speaking, who became ministers of the word, they encountered Jesus Christ. And when they encountered Jesus Christ, something happened. They were changed. Now this isn't to say that all of the eyewitnesses in the God we read of in the Gospels and that um, who met Jesus were changed or were, became ministers of the word or even became followers of Jesus, right? When the Pharisees encounter Jesus, they're certainly eyewitnesses, they want to kill him. And when the rich young ruler of Luke 18 encounters Jesus, what does he do? He walks away saddened because Jesus Christ confronted an idol of his, something that he just wouldn't let go of. He knew he couldn't let go of for whatever reason, and he walked away saddened. But time and time again in Luke Acts and in the Gospels as a whole, when someone encounters Jesus Christ, something happens. They never leave the encounter the same way. And how true is that of us today? When we encounter Jesus Christ in the scriptures, something happens. We don't leave the same way we came. Such an encounter might harden us, might walk away from the encounter angry, at God or angry at Jesus for whatever reason, or perhaps, as I'm sure a lot of us can testify, the encounter will break us to the point that we come and die so that we might indeed live. But in order to take Jesus Christ seriously, Luke in his prologue tells us we have to take his account seriously. Many of us have probably heard of C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma from his book Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity, a bestseller for I don't even know how long. Uh, but, but in Mere Christianity, he, he, 
he's known for this famous trilemma that he presents. And C.S. Lewis basically says that when we meet Jesus in the Gospels, we must conclude that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Trilemma three, liar, lunatic, or Lord. In other words, Jesus can't just be a good moral teacher. The Gospels don't leave us with that option, despite that being a very popular notion of who Jesus is. And although these three options that Lewis presents, liar, lunatic, or Lord, should leave us with the firm conclusion that Jesus Christ is Lord. After all, a careful reading of the Gospels, we can't conclude anything else other than that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Lewis doesn't give us another hypothetical option, a hypothetical fourth option, that being that perhaps the Gospels themselves are fabrications. If Luke's Gospel, for instance, doesn't accurately picture Jesus, then perhaps one could, hypothetically, conclude Jesus is neither a liar, a lunatic, nor is he Lord. The whole thing is a legend. But Luke, at the outset of his Gospel, it's almost as if he anticipates that objection in his prologue. And he builds his credentials again and again by succinctly highlighting his method and showing that what he writes is true to history. And a close scrutiny of Luke's work and of his content reveals that there is, he is seriously concerned with the historical accuracy of what he writes. And gospel scholars today affirm time and time again the historical veracity, the historical truthfulness of Luke's account. And so Luke in his prologue, he wants to remove a potential obstacle to meeting Jesus and taking Jesus seriously. So he tells us simply and plainly that his account can be trusted. And friends, the Gospels as a whole, Luke's account included, can indeed be trusted as historically reliable. One implication of all this is that when we take Luke's account, his entire account seriously, we also are forced to take the whole picture of Jesus that he presents seriously. In historical and more critical gospel scholarship, and even in more popular circles, when Jesus Christ is discussed, it's a very popular thing to do to pick and choose passages from the gospel accounts to fashion a Jesus in our own image. But if we want to meet the whole Jesus, we don't have that option. If we want to meet the Jesus who will really give us assurance, if we want to meet the Jesus who's true to history, if we want to meet the Jesus whom you and I ultimately need, we have to allow the full witness of Luke's gospel and the full witness of the scriptures as a whole to wash over us and to change our predilections. If we really want certainty and assurance that the gospel is true, if we want, really want certainty and assurance that despite our mess and the messiness of life, that God really loves us, if we want biblical direction and refreshment that our prayers have meaning and purpose, we have to allow the full sweeping picture of Jesus to confront us. We don't have the option of picking and choosing. Well, once we grant that Luke's account is accurate, and once we allow the whole Jesus to meet us and to confront us, what we'll find is that Jesus himself is trustworthy. And so this leads to our second point. Assurance is built by seeing the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. Notice in a, a close reading of the prologue, we find that Luke isn't merely interested in showing through his narrative that some historical events happened. It's certainly true, as we've just discussed, that these events, the events of Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection happened, and that Luke's account accurately relays these important episodes of Jesus' life. But Luke is interested in 
something more. He's interested in something more than merely showing us the person and work of Jesus in history. Luke, and this, like the sources he uses, he's interested in showing us what Jesus accomplished in redemptive history. Notice the wording of verse 1 where we read, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been, what is it, accomplished or fulfilled, some of your translations might say, among us. Luke's aim, together with the sources that he is using, is to show us that Jesus' work as revealed in the gospel and the spirits pouring out as revealed in Acts is the accomplishment, is the fulfillment of something that was anticipated from the beginning, something that was anticipated from Genesis, the beginning of creation and the fall, all the way through the Pentateuch, through the prophets, and onward. But this isn't just a unique contribution that Luke makes, too, right? Throughout the entire New Testament, Jesus Christ is held as the fulfillment of something, of everything that we anticipate, of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. As the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God, every single one of them that we read about in the New Testament, finds their yes in Jesus Christ. And throughout Luke's two-volume work, he joins his project with the project of the entire New Testament and upholding Jesus as the answer, as the climax to all of these promises in the Old Testament. And there's not just one way that Luke does that either. There are several ways that Luke and all of the gospel writers show Jesus as the completion, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, the temple, the temple, for instance, many gospel scholars note, is an especially important entity in Luke's gospel. In fact, if you, if you take a broad perspective to the Gospel of Luke, right after the prologue, the Gospel of Luke goes into Zechariah's temple encounter. And then at the very end of Luke's Gospel, we read about the, the disciples or the apostles praising God in the temple. This is something known as an inclusio. It starts with the temple and ends with the, God, ends with the temple. Simply put, Luke's trying to tell us that the temple is something that's very important to his narrative. We know that in the Old Testament, the temple was the seat of God's presence among his people. It was the place where, metaphorically, heaven met earth. But Luke is interested in showing that the many functions of the temple, preeminently so, this function as a meeting place between heaven and earth, has been transferred to Jesus Christ. In other words, rather than going to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and be near God, when we meet Jesus Christ, we meet God. We draw near to God in Jesus Christ. And now that the Spirit's been poured out on the church, we have a foretaste of heaven when we meet together as a church, as those who are in Christ. And so this is just one way that Luke, through his emphasis on the temple throughout his gospel, shows that Jesus is the accomplishment of something pretty important in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment. He's simply better. Well, perhaps more immediately relevant for our purposes Another especially important theme for Luke is his concern for showing how the Old Testament anticipated the inclusion of Gentile Christians, Gentile Christians like Theophilus, into the people of God. And in Jesus Christ, how these ethical or ethnic uh, distinctions between Jew and Gentile have been utterly abolished. All the way back in the book of Genesis, where God makes a covenant, makes a promise with Abraham. He meets Abraham in Genesis 12. What does he say to him? In Genesis 12, 3, God promises to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the point, as the Old Testament plays out this theme, is that Israel was called to be a people who lived in covenant fidelity to their God 
And as they did so, the nations were going to be drawn to their God, to the true God of Israel, in worship to him. Yet, what we find time and time again in the Old Testament is that because Israel failed in their calling to be a holy people, they also failed in their mission to call the Gentiles and the nations to the people of God or to God. Yet because they failed in their calling, where they failed in their calling, the Gospels paint Jesus Christ as the one who succeeded in Israel's behalf. And as the Gospels paint this picture of Jesus succeeding on Israel's behalf, Luke in particular emphasizes that Jesus is the one who welcomes the outcasts of society. He welcomes the Gentiles and the poor and the socioeconomically disadvantaged into the people of God. So for Gentiles and outcasts like Theophilus who may have doubted whether or not they really belonged, for those who were in sorrow from being outcast from both Jews and their fellow Gentiles, they didn't really have a place where the temptation must have been to return to their previous idols, a place where they knew what belonging looked like, where the Luke shows that they do belong and that they were always meant to belong. It was part of God's plan from the beginning, and in Jesus Christ they do belong because this barrier between Jew and Gentile has been abolished. If a Gentile like Theophilus wants to know whether or not the gospel is really true, which after all is the aim of Luke's entire gospel, whether or not, if Theophilus wants to know whether or not he and his fellow Gentiles are really loved by God, whether or not they really can be assured that they have hope, Luke says, in effect, look at what God's up to in Jesus Christ. Look at what Christ has accomplished. And then through the window of Acts, look at how the Spirit has moved to bring you Gentiles, you people that don't really have a place right now, seemingly so, into the people of God. If these Gentiles were wondering, do I really belong despite my past sins? Do I really belong despite my ethnicity or my socioeconomic status? Luke answers in a resounding yes. Well, though we likely don't face the same set of questions as first century Gentile readers such as Theophilus faced, I think we do face similar questions of belonging, right? Everyone here whether you're a Christian or you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I bet you want to belong. As, as humans, it's part of our DNA to want to belong to something. But when we look at the church of Jesus Christ, there's something fascinating about it, or at least there should be something fascinating about it. And that is that membership into this body transcends racial distinctions. It transcends socioeconomic distinctions transcends cultural distinctions, it transcends hobbies, it transcends whatever you like or dislike, it transcends generations. Humanly speaking, all of these barriers we erect in creating groups and creating sort of an identity of belonging, the Church of Jesus Christ transcends all of those barriers. There's nothing, humanly speaking, that should draw all of us together. Your past baggage, your resume, what you do or don't bring to the table isn't a hindrance to coming to this community. There's no other community like the church of Jesus Christ. And when we stop to consider the church and those among us, what I think we have to conclude is that the only reason we have been drawn together is a supernatural reason. God's grand vision to unite diverse peoples who turn to the Lord without distinction is itself a testimony to the truth of the gospel. It's a testimony, first and foremost, not to our proclivity to be a welcoming people, even though I hope we are and I hope we continue to be. 
It's a testimony to the power of Christ in his gospel to unify. It's a testimony to the power of God. So if, Luke is saying here, if you want assurance that the gospel is true, friends, look around you. Look around you. You are a testimony to what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And this is something Luke wants to emphasize in his gospel. Just a quick note on on when we read the gospels in general, even though the main point, as we said time and time again in this sermon, the main point of each gospel is to point us to the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in, in that sense, many of them tell us the same type of stories, the same type of parables and so forth. Each gospel writer nevertheless has a particular focus that he wants to emphasize. And this is revealed in the way they organize material and the things they choose to use or the choose, things they choose to select or deselect and so forth. Keep in mind what John says at the end of his gospel that all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus said or done. So naturally, in writing the gospels, there's a selective process that's going on here. And for Luke, one of the things he chooses to select from Jesus's, from the many things that Jesus has did and the way he tends to organize his gospel, he wants to present and show through the way he does all of these things that the poor, the Gentiles, the socially outcast, those who wouldn't have really any part in any community, they now have incredible worth and belonging. By showing us these type of people belong to the people of God, Luke is in fact showing the breadth and the beauty and the truthfulness of the gospel. Well, the Christian community, friends, is a testimony to what Christ has accomplished. In effect, Luke says, you want to be sure that the gospel is true? Look at how you've been drawn together in Christ. Look at what Christ has accomplished in uniting the wealthy and poor, the Jew and Gentile, the slave and free. Now, this didn't mean that all of these different types of people blended without issue. Cursory scan of Acts and the letters of the New Testament reveal, I think we can all agree, problems aplenty in this new arrangement. And I'm sure if you look around yourselves right now, I'm sure there's people in the church that you don't get along with right now. Or maybe that you have a, uh, a hardened heart towards. Yet the fact that God could still bring us together, the first century Christians and even us today sitting here right now, the fact that he could bring us together, such diverse people, underscores the power of the gospel to unify and surely gives, a, surely gives us assurance, not only of what God is able to do in your lives, but that the gospel is really true. Well, one implication of all of this is that when we see God's power and ability to draw us together, to unify us in the gospel, despite our sin, despite our backgrounds or status, we should be willing to welcome others with open arms as well. So ask yourself, what are my prejudices? The call for Jewish believers to welcome Gentiles into their midst, which is really the call here, is like uh, asking a French family to welcome a German soldier into their homes in 1940s German-occupied France. It's a countercultural type of community that Jesus Christ brought, and it's only in Jesus Christ that this community is possible. So for someone like Theophilus wondering, is the gospel really true? Luke says, look to Jesus. Look at what he's accomplished in bringing you Gentiles and such a weird group of people, the church, together, all wrapped up and consumed in the glory, the majesty, the power of God and his gospel. Well, in conclusion, as we continue to dive into the gospels, maybe throughout this year as a church, or as you dive into the gospel individually in your own prayer life and devotional life, knowing that what they record is true 
and knowing that we serve a God who's not only powerful, but who also faithfully answers every single one of his promises that he sets forth in Scripture, we really can have assurance, a steadfast assurance that the gospel is true. But at the same time, and I'll caution us on this, at the same time, this doesn't mean that we have to pretend or lie to ourselves when we have an ounce of doubt about stuff. Doubt is inevitable. In fact, the disciples in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records that even the disciples, after they meet the resurrected Jesus, we read, but some of them doubted. So some of the disciples doubted after meeting the resurrected Jesus. I mean, I'm sure that we are bound to doubt too. We all come with questions that we don't know how to answer. We all come with questions and, um, and uncertainty. Yet for whatever questions we have, the Gospels invite us to come and first and foremost see Jesus, to set our minds, set our affections on Jesus, to have our hearts renewed, to have our minds renewed in looking to Jesus. Even though some of us might have questions aplenty, when we meet Jesus Christ and we really reflect on who he is and the God of our salvation, many of these questions that we really do have, the real questions that we do have, will really be put into perspective. They might slide to the periphery as we take and behold the God who saves, preeminently so in Jesus Christ. Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you've met us in the scriptures, that you have sent your son, you've sent your spirit to us, and that as we live, as we walk, and as we do, as we live as Christians, that, Lord, you would indeed uh, answer our questions, but even more so that some of the questions we do have, you would help us put those into perspective as we meet, enjoy, and feast on Jesus Christ. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.